You're listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network on BingeMedia.net. And now, the Binge Aftertaste. Water is what? The flowing element, the element of change. To master water, you must release your emotions wherever they may lead you. Water teaches us acceptance. Let your emotions flow like water. This review of The Last Airbender, part of the binge movie aftertaste, M. Night Shyamalan Retrospective. It's time for you to stop doing this! Join Garrett, Matt, and the returning Mike Ganeri as they look at the entire span of Shyamalan's work. You are the only one in the entire world who could pass this test. From that little known weekly emission, The Sixth Sense, all the way through his new release, Old, coming out July 23rd. The boys look at all the signs of what makes Shyamalan possess one of the most fascinating careers in the history of Hollywood. Everybody can help us now! When did everything go wrong? There was no love without sacrifice. And why the hell did Mike not see the sixth sense until this retrospective? You are my prisoner. The answers to all these questions and more, all coming up courtesy of Binge Media. Um, we have to go. The Last Airbender, released July 1st, 2010. Budget on this was $150 million. Box office, $319.7 million worldwide. And this was directed by our buddy, M. Night Shyamalan. Oh boy, another episode I have been waiting like crazy to get to. We all have so many questions, so many things to say about this movie. But Matt, before I go to you, I gotta go once again to start things off. I gotta go to our buddy Mike over here. Mike? Yeah. This is what, your fourth retrospective with us, I think? Uh, Hannibal, Michael Mann, Bad Boys, yeah. Yeah, fourth, okay. You have not done a fantasy movie with us. Are you a fan of fantasy movies at all? Um, you know, I'd say I am. I mean, I love The Lord of the Rings. Those are some of the best film-going experiences I think I've had in my entire lifetime. You know, I remember seeing Return of the King and having just a, a ball with that. You know, I like your, your Game of Thrones or some of, some of Game of Thrones as much as the next guy. Uh, yeah, I think I like fantasy. I guess it's not my favorite genre. I think maybe if, if you put sci-fi and fantasy in front of me, I'd probably go with sci-fi more often than I'd go with fantasy. But I like a good fantasy. I like people shooting fireballs out of their hands on occasion, you know? Uh, who doesn't? Goudreau, what about you? Oh, we did... That's the answer. Yeah. <laughs> 
Goudreau, you and I, we've done 80s fantasy together. We haven't done too many. We're going to be doing fantasy this year, though. Are you a fan of fantasy genre yourself? Hmm. I tend to like fantasy better when it draws me. When I have to look at something strictly just because it's epic fantasy, I think of stuff like Aragon when I was a kid. I, I say kid, I was like 12 or 13 when I saw that piece of shit. But but I'm what you'd call casual. I like Lord of the Rings, but it's not my favorite. Game of Thrones, I can take or leave. Pretty much any movie that takes place outside of the confines of reality, which is 90% of them, depends on the subject, but... It's not my favorite by any means. Now, you're going to be my go-to with this because this is a movie based on an existing property. Just to give a little bit of a backstory, I did a little bit of research on this. And, you know, I'm looking at this cartoon, and I'll get to my experience with it in the last couple of weeks here in a little bit. But I'm watching this cartoon. I'm thinking, wow, this must be based on an Asian cartoon, the same thing. They, they kind of took it and Americanized it a little bit. They're using these influences from Japanime and all these things. No, this was made by two white guys who were working on the family guy and <laughs> all of a sudden had this idea for this cartoon back in the early 2000s. And they had a huge hit on their hands. And that surprised me when I learned that, that this was actually from the minds of these two guys from the family guy. And what I loved about this was in doing research on this movie is when it was first announced that M. Night was going to be doing this, they liked the idea. They were like, we're excited to see what he does with our characters. But they eventually started coming out in the press saying that there was kind of a falling out between the three of them and the studio. And they were pretty much just wiping their hands clean of this movie. And this was like a year or so before it even came out. Matt, you pointed out to me you are a massive fan of this cartoon. What was it about this cartoon that you love so much? Let me start off by saying I didn't start watching Avatar The Last Airbender until about a year or so after it had already started. So I kind of, I don't want to say outgrew Nickelodeon, but it was not something I, you know, you really thought you'd say to your friends that you still watch. But to me, it looked like just, you know, another kid's show. Like, could have been something like Danny Phantom or Fairly Odd Parents. But I would hear people talk about it like it was coming of God this is, because he's a reincarnated God, basically. So I sat down and I got into it. I watched the whole thing. I sort of backtracked. But for me, one of the things that, that really drew me to this is that this is the closest someone has ever gotten to capturing, like, a Miyazaki level of quaintness both in terms of the portrayals of culture, especially the, the imagination of Miyazaki when I look at some of the fight choreography. But it also starts and ends with the characters, I think. If there's a property that I can think of from a storytelling perspective that is as strong as Harry Potter in a fantasy environment, I think it's this. Wow. A trio. We have a trio of characters, the chosen one, the girl slash friend who's wise beyond her years, and then you got the comic relief uh, jokester having to fight the forces of darkness. So this lore, it's as expansive as the Potterverse within those books. So it, it was really a perfect storm. And thankfully, this show did not run too long. It did not overstay its welcome. It's only three seasons, 60 episodes, mm -hmm. because they had a clear and concise story to tell. They had a start point. They knew where it had to end. Now, Mike, how familiar with the, were you with this cartoon before you sat down to watch this movie yesterday? Uh, not at all. I've never seen it. When it came around, I I guess I just wasn't watching a lot of animated shows or shows on Nickelodeon or anything at that at that point. 
And since then, I you know I've heard great things, and I, I know people who are really into it, and uh, people say things like Matt has been just been saying here really high praise, uh, but I've just never gotten around to doing it. It'll, it's it's on the list somewhere, you know what I mean? It, it'll it'll be done one day. I don't know, maybe after I do the Shield or something. But uh, <laughs> uh, I've never seen it. Don't know anything about it other than what I saw in this film. So I have this very strange experience where I know in theory it's supposed to be good, and I hear Matt talking about it and c- comparing the show to Miyazaki and these beautiful things about it and everything like that and i have to match that up with the film we just saw and it's a very um well it's an interesting experience yeah let's put it that way definitely i'm glad though i'm glad because i always like on these podcasts to have one outsider you know what i'm saying like one person who Mm -hmm. is not familiar with any of the source material that we're about ready to review and just has their mind focused on the thing that they just saw so i'm actually glad for your outsider's perspective now me you know, <laughs> early to mid-2000s, I was in my 20s, and, I, you know, cartoons were not a part of my life. I do, however, I have a good friend who helped me with this part of this retrospective was kind of her true calling because she is a massive fan of this series. When I asked her to give me five of the series' best episodes, she proved she couldn't count by giving me 15, saying she just couldn't narrow it down. And she, along with another asshole on this podcast, said that I should just binge watch all 62 of the episodes in preparation of this. Now, Matt and I, we have at least two retrospectives this year, which require a lot of reading. I have started doing so in preparation for those retrospectives. In addition to which, to those who are not in the binge group, for Christmas, Matt gave me the entire Harry Potter book set. And I've started going through the first book of those as well. So in other words, I don't have that kind of free time to go through 62 episodes. But I was able to watch 10 of them. 10 of the 15 that she gave me. And honestly, I feel I got a good sense of the show's flavor. It's definitely geared towards kids, so there's a ton of goofiness and pratfalls and such. But... I could also tell a lot of underlying themes that were going on in this as well. Like one episode in particular tells of um, Katara. Is that her, that's her name, right? Katara. She. Uh, she's. She... Well, this is one of many arguments we're going to have because. Um... <laughs> <laughs> All right. vastly different. For the sake of the movie, I'll go ahead and call her Katara. I, that's how I have it written down in my in my notes. She's stuck in a cave with what I could only conclude was a band of hippie monks. And that was an episode that I actually laughed at pretty hard. I think the flavor of the show, while not really my cup of tea, it's an enjoyable show. Matt, is that kind of an accurate portrayal of uh, how the show is overall? The show is, for an anime series, it deals with a lot of very touchy themes like colonialism. Some episodes, though, are funnier than others. And some are more serious than others because, you know, not everything can be dark and gloom and not everything can be, you know, lackadaisical, almost like Warcraft level of just doing stuff that's irrelevant to the main story. So how did Knight get involved with this show and uh, this adaptation? Well, his daughter had dressed as Katara for Halloween one year and Knight said, who's that character? She showed him the show and the themes. And all of these combined with the fact that M. Night himself, and I didn't realize this, M. Night himself, he practices martial arts in his off time. It kind of made him fall in love with the idea of maybe doing the project. He sat and he watched all the episodes with his family, and he fell in love with it. This was also the year that you alluded to earlier in this retrospective, Mike, where there was a trailer for Devil that started off from the master of horror and suspense, Pause, M. Night Shyamalan, and theaters around the country, they just groaned and laughed. His name at this point was no longer in the good graces of the American public, so he really needed a hit at this point to remain even close to relevant. Oh, yeah. 
totally. This is a, this is a, a total example of that thing where you see a director who has a known style and a known name and a, and a reputation, and they go through a series of setbacks, flops, poorly received films, personal crises, whatever, and they need a hit, and so they, they hook on to some sort of pre-existing property that they think can give them a guaranteed audience. Uh, you see that, I mean, it's, it's very often these days. I mean, we, you'll see Robert Zemeckis does fucking Marwin, and then he has to go do Pinocchio or whatever, you know, where it's for, for Disney, where it's like, well, okay, I'll hold my nose and I'll grin and bear it. Maybe I'll figure, maybe, maybe I'll get, get something that works. It's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not necessarily uncomfortable doing this, but like, you know, this is, this wasn't my original idea but I'll, I'll i'll find a way to to smuggle some Shyamalan into this package or whatever so like clearly he he was planning on having this be uh an opportunity to have a guaranteed blockbuster close to a guaranteed blockbuster and uh no he, he fucked he, it up he, he, he <laughs> someone definitely... fucked it up i don't know but <laughs> well i mean worldwide it made decent enough money but stateside it pretty much flopped and when you flop stateside that pretty much means that your movie is a flop. And combined with all the marketing they did for this movie, and there was a ton of marketing for this, it is considered a pretty bad flop. And hated. Too. Yes. People hated it. Very hated. And we'll get into that as we get into the movie, and for the reasons why, obviously. Uh, Matt, I believe we talked about in our Harry Potter retrospective. He was offered one of those, and he turned it down. He's had offers to do these types of franchises in the past, but he's always turned them down because he feels, why tell the genius who was close to God and when after he woke up from the water why tell him that he needs to do a franchise so he did his own stuff realized it wasn't really working and this was something that he thought he could sink his teeth into and do something with oh boy did he do something with it yeah and you know most franchises that start off like this they'll try to do a second one maybe they'll slash the budget or they'll punt it a year but this was scrapping all the plans of a trilogy right out the window yeah Absolutely. I remember that pretty well. And you're right, because Matt, last year we did Nightmare on Elm Street. And even after the backlash that came up against that movie, they were still planning on doing a sequel for that to that movie for a number of years until finally Brad Fuller had to come out and say, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. This was relatively quick. You're absolutely right when the reviews started coming out. Now, I had no idea that M. Night was even attached to this movie. I saw a trailer for it when I went to Comic-Con one year. Didn't think it looked bad. But then the reviews started rolling in, and my God, uh, the reviews for this are not good. And he finally got what was coming to him, boys. He finally got some Razzie Awards. Five for this movie. So he's always been on the cusp of getting Razzies, and God forbid, I don't know why The Happening didn't end up getting it over The Love Guru, the movie before, but he finally got his Razzies. This movie's kind of a love guru in that it has a lot of white people who are... (laughs) Oh, yeah. You know... (laughs) Pretending not to be. All right. Well, we're definitely going to get into that. In fact, let's just get into the movie, and uh, that's going to come up here rather quick. So we start off with yet another preamble. Now, I wouldn't have known this had I not watched some of the series, but Matt, a lot of this preamble is pretty much the intro to the cartoon, right? The big difference is the the wall of text that this movie will not open with a Star Wars crawl. There's a ton of Star Wars in this. From here, we get the title card, book one, Water. This obviously was going to be a trilogy, but again, this is taken right from that series because every episode begins with book and whatever season it is, right, Matt? Yeah, every season of the show is named after an element, the element that he has to learn. That's kind of how the the naming is structured. 
So but in this, it kind of feels like uh, like what's the fucking movie with Fred Ward? Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. Oh Jesus! Where it's like, like, yeah, that's right. I read that reference. It's sort of like uh, uh, like they're telling you right away, like book one, like don't worry, there will be more. It's like there there won't be more at night. There's not going to be any more. This is this is. Uh, I'm going to make another thing, which is one of my favorite and I think funniest things ever to happen in the history of blockbuster filmmaking, which is the Divergent series. Oh yeah. Did you guys ever see any of those? Oh they're yeah. They're bad. They're terrible. Um uh and I saw the I saw the last one on a date or well anyways. Uh it was a date. It sucked and I got to the end of it and I was like, wow, they're set they're really going to set up for another movie and it was like it was they'd named the movie like part 1. So it was like they'd split a final book. I never read any of the books, but they like split the final book into two parts and then they just never made the second part cuz the first one Flops so bad. It's yeah. hilarious to me to like call your shot like that and then not follow through on it. It's just so funny. The Golden Compass, Aragon, Divergent, Percy Jackson, all of them fell by the wayside. Yeah. And this is part of this too. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like I look at the first Harry Potter movie. It works perfectly as a standalone movie. If there was not another one made, I'd be disappointed as a fan of the books. But you can watch that movie and get a holistic experience. This, oh god, I, I'm gonna try my best not to make so many Harry Potter comparisons during the show. Well, it's I hard, mean, but it's natural. Yeah, I was yeah. gonna say it's hard not to. You know, it, it's a hard thing not to do. We're gonna make Harry Potter references. We're gonna be making a lot of Star Wars comparisons. We're gonna be making hell comparisons to Divergent for God's sake. I mean, there are things that he puts in this movie that are just Remo Williams. Yeah, Remo Williams. This Remo. is mind-boggling. So we see a ball of water emerge from the ice and then see that Katara is controlling it. Is it bad that I kind of like this effect? I know this movie gets a lot of shit for its effects, but at least here in the beginning, when I'm seeing this water come out, I don't think this is that bad. Well, I think that, okay, so at the beginning of this film, I don't know where they're filming or how much of this is a set or a green screen or whatever, but the beginning of the film, this setting looks pretty good i think uh-huh. like the ice and the, the and I, I was actually kind of at the beginning like the the opening kind of crawl thing put a bad taste in my mouth because it just gave me lady in the water vibes but yeah it's actually better than the one lady of the water so we'll, we'll give it that at least but um when i saw like the landscapes and everything i was actually kind of like oh this is actually like i, I always heard that this movie was like notoriously ugly and it was like post converted to 3d mm-hmm. and people said it was like one of the worst looking films of all time and everything but now, first scene, I'm like, oh, this is kind of pretty. I like kind of sort of, it's like got this like uh, Nordic or Arctic kind of look to it. And I was like, this is kind of neat. And I think that combined with the special effects is a good look at the beginning because at, at this point, there's not a billion effects going on at once. And there's the, and badly CGI'd ships and people are running through it and everything. It's a much simpler shot and it's, and therefore it's a lot, you know, sort of easier to, to pull off correctly. So I think that's kind of what you're reacting to. I don't mind the bubble effects. It's not one of the worst effects I've ever seen. But this is one of the most obvious examples of green screening that I can think of. It's almost like you can see the markers that they're standing on, so they're not in the way. Yeah. But it's one it's one of the worst ones I've seen because 80% of this movie is so dark, and 3D makes things darker yeah. exponentially, that there are points in this movie that if you saw it in 3D, you could not tell what was happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I didn't see it in 3D. So, Matt, did you see in th- this in theaters? I didn't even ask you. Nope. Why well, would I go see something that I know is going to hurt me? <laughs> well, you've done it for this podcast many times. But you'd have to pay at that point. The buzz on this movie was so toxic. People mm. 
really were not looking forward to. There was not a, a note of positive buzz. I mean, as soon as M Night was attached, people were already trepidatious, and then once the actors started being signed, people just hated what they were getting yeah. into. And and so by the time the movie came out, there was just no positive feeling for it at all. So it does not surprise me that somebody who was a fan of the show would have no interest in seeing the film. Now, I gave a little bit of a positive note on the effect here to begin things, but what I don't like is the banter between Katara and her brother, Soka. Now, let's get into this right now, boys. When this movie mm-hmm. came out, there was an uproar over the cast not being diversified, a.k.a. they were whitewashed. Now, I'm under the belief that if an actor or actress fits the part, there really shouldn't be an issue. My problem is that Nicola Peltz and Jackson Rathbone, they don't feel like they fit any part. They are bland, and both just don't look like they want to be here. Did you guys feel this movie was whitewashed? Yes, completely. Okay, there's so many problems with the casting. It's like, I'm not sure where to start. But so Okay, so you've got these two very white, I mean, whiter than I am, kids. And they go back to their village, and everyone in their village is Inuit. It's ridiculous. They, they go, these, these, like, two very, very white, very American people, they go back to their village, and they're the only white people there. And it's like, it doesn't make any sense, because it's the whole idea is that they're in this tribe, and it's like a, a tribe that's kind of insular. They have their own way of doing things. They don't interact so much with the outside world. They have their own traditions and everything. So in theory, everybody in the tribe should be part of the same. They should seem to have a commonality to them, and they, they don't have that. And then it's like later on in the film, you see um, the main kid, Ang, you see him, and he's training with a bunch of whatever. I mean, it's all fantasy, but they're, they're clearly coded as like a Buddhist monk types. And all of the actors who he's with are East Asian, and he's a white kid. And it's like, yeah. it's so, it's like, it's the thing of the main characters are white, and the extras are ethnic. And it's like, that that's such a hierarchical kind of thing that it's really like insulting. And I think and that's basically what uh, Ridley Scott did with the Exodus movie. You yes. know, where Christian Bale and, and oh, Joel Edgerton yeah. are Egyptians and everything like that. But in the, in this, it's actually kind of weirdly worse or like weirdly more confusing because he didn't cast big stars. It's not like he was like, well, uh, I got Tom Cruise. So it's like, I know he's not really Asian, but, you know, he's Tom Cruise. so He can sell the movie. He got a bunch of unknowns. So it's like they don't have any selling power. And also they fucking suck at acting. These people that he got are terrible. I know for a fact that, like, the girl, um, Katara, the, the, the actress who plays her, Nicola Pels or Pels mm-hmm. or something like that, her, I'm, maybe I'm, like, kind of uncharitable, but her, she's the daughter of a billionaire who gave money to help finance the film. That's kind of no what shit. the, yeah, and it's like, oh. that's, yeah. Wow. And she's done stuff since then, like, I haven't seen her in other things, but, like, she, uh, it looks like she was on Bates Motel. Like she's she's still acting, so it's not like she... Maybe she's gone on to become a very good actor. I mean, there are so, certainly some actors who, when they started off as kids, they were terrible, and then as, by the time they became adults, they got better. But in this, she is complete, you know... I mean, yeah. she's an adult now, so I don't feel bad saying it. She's terrible in this movie. This yeah. is bad acting. This is like and, a school play. It's like a, a movie you film in your backyard. Yeah, and Matt and I reviewed her, actually, a couple years ago. She was in one of the Transformers films. She, you know, she has done stuff, but, God, I did not know that about her father. Wow, that's mm-hmm. uh, that's very yeah. interesting. Jackson Rathbone, the only thing I've, I've seen him in is Twilight. Yeah. And, and he's not even a major character in the Twilight movies, so he's not going to sell this movie. And, oh, my God, the – how do I articulate this the best way? The acting in this movie is so bad. It is what people think 
the Star Wars prequels are. It's yeah. like that perception of terrible. To me, this movie is the movie that everyone perceives the prequels to be. And the main kid, Ong, or, I'm going to say Ang, because that's how you should say it. Oh, really? Uh, okay. Yeah, I have never seen a kid remind me as much of Jake Lloyd as I did watching him in this movie. Oh, he's he's really bad. I want to get to him here in a little bit. But look, that's a great great point you made about the Star Wars prequels. Because as bad as the Star Wars prequels are, and, and I've defended them a lot in the past. Everybody knows this. I have articles on the website. I've done podcasts about it. I have defended them to no end. But the acting in it isn't the best. You compare those movies to this? I mean, Jesus Christ. It seems like you, you have the Godfather in the prequels when it comes to the acting in uh, in this movie. Uh, Jackson Rathbone, again, that's the only thing I saw. Like, you, you pull up his IMDb, it's like his, his only four movies that come up are like the four of the Twilight films. You know, I, I, I haven't seen this guy since. The Pickel Pouts, as I mentioned, I've seen her since. But yeah, the acting in this, I'm going to get to the main kid here in a little bit. It's bad. And I think a lot of the problems with this movie, I'm, I'm just going to put it out there. I'm not going to say all negative things about this movie. There are parts of this movie I actually do like. But a big thing about this movie that is what kills it is miscasting. There is yeah. so much miscasting here. And again, you could point it to being whitewashed. Mike, you made a great point about that. I'm not going to say it's not. But what I am going to say is I just think it's just bad acting. It's just if you had better actors here, nobody would yeah. even think about it. There's one person in here who is not whitewashed who I think probably gives the worst performance in the movie. And I think we'll get to them. So if that's not the only issue. And there's people here who I think are really strong actors who give not impressive performances at all. So there's there's all kinds of there's like unknowns who suck and shouldn't have been cast. There's people who in theory could have been great but like are not giving good performances for one reason or another and there's people who are like just completely out of it. It's just really this is this is a poorly acted film across the board. And it's uh I mean yeah, Star Wars prequels, that's a good comparison. This is mm-hmm. sub Star Wars prequels because in those movies you have Ewan McGregor doing fucking great work there as as Obi-Wan. Mm-hmm. That's that's always the performance I go to in that is like I think that's like one of the best performances in one of the not worst movies, but like that's such a good performance compared to how not good those movies are. This is one where everybody feels like they're unsure of what they're doing. And there's one person who I feel like does feel like he's sure of what he's doing, but what he's doing is not correct. So we'll, we'll get to him later. I can't believe we're 30 minutes into the podcast. We've only gotten to three minutes of the movie. So <laughs> Katara gets Soka wet with a ball of water, and they move on to hunt for food. And can I just say, yet again, M. Night is using voiceover, this time by Pelts, to convey each situation. I understand that his first script for this, get this, boys, was seven hours long. Um, Christ. As he felt he had to make the entire first season. It's almost as long as the first season of the TV show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he wanted to do that whole first season. But in order to condense it into an under two-hour movie, he felt like he had to use voiceover. And it, we, we've said this in past movies in this series. To me, using voiceover is very lazy. And when you have this girl giving it, it's not only very lazy, it's very painful to listen to. And this is a, a film that's so, I mean, you're, you, like, it does not surprise me that his first script was that long and that it was as long as a season of the TV show because this is a film that has no structure in, uh, in any way, uh, of, a, a film structure. There's no momentum. There's no moments to breathe. There's nothing that makes this a movie and its structure and not just a, a series of incidents that could work in an episodic format because that's a different structure but doesn't work in a film. And this is, it's so simultaneously overstuffed and under 
stuff. I don't know. Uh, under under something. Uh, like, where it's like, there's so many events that happens, but none of it seems to mean anything because we don't understand who these characters are. Uh, I mean, the obvious point of comparison is something like Star Wars, but in Star Wars, you had a different variety of thinking of the original Star Wars here. You had a different variety of characters. You had people who were uh, very uh, uh, young and, and naive, but you also had people who were kind of older and humorously cynical, and you had people who were very old and wise, and you had people who were tough but also had a vulnerability, and you had a, a range of emotions, which meant you could map yourself onto that situation. Here, everybody seems to be so just dead. I mean, it's just so emotionless. There's a love story, I guess, that goes on in this film that is not Ooh. viable at all. Ooh. And this is, this is, this is bad. This movie does have a structure, but it's the Phantom Menace. Oof. Mm. According to M. Night, Katara is the main character of the story, but I just don't see that in this movie. I don't see her as being the main character. That, that goes to my point, and that the Phantom Menace, I would argue there's no central character. And I would also argue that, much like the Phantom Menace, there's really no sense of a threat in this movie, and there's no narrative thrust. It's just a series of stops yeah. to pad this movie out. And again, you have all the source material to mine from, so you could really pick and choose what you want to tell. But, but to me, that just means that they're, they didn't know what they wanted to tell. Yeah, yeah, I, and your your the narrations. I'll, I'll put a I'll earth bend a rock over my mouth until we get to that point. <laughs> so speaking of narration, how weird is it that this film begins with that like opening crawl type thing with the narration, and then it transitions into a scene, but there's still narration. Yeah, but it's not a continuation of the previous narration. It's just <laughs> it, it's just. Do you know what I'm saying? And then Absolutely, there was yeah. a long stretch of the movie where I forgot that there was any narration in it. And then it gets to a scene and she's like, so there we were at the temple or whatever. And I was like, fuck, that's right. There was a narrator in this movie. And it's like, so. Yeah. And then it doesn't come back in the last scene, which you think like, how about uh, take us out here, buddy? Like, you know. Yeah. But it's, it's so strange. So strange. It's jarring. It's really jarring. <laughs> so they move on and find a rumbling block of ice. When Soka breaks it, there's a cave-in, and out comes a sphere. And from the sphere emerges not only a massive white light into the sky, but the character of Aang, I guess I'll call him that, even though it's Ong in the movie, played by Noah Ringer. Now, apparently, M. Night saw this kid doing martial arts in a video that he had sent him because he was a massive fan of the show heard that they were doing a movie based on it. And M. Knight looked at it and said, yep, that's the kid, even though he kind of looked like him and could wave a stick, but he had not seen him act yet. They gave him the movie's central character. Now, have you guys ever said things in a podcast you wish you could take back? Oh, yeah, um, yeah. I'm pretty sure that's 100% of all the shows we've done. Well, you, right. you guys remember that 18-and-a-half-minute gap from our last episode where I confessed <laughs> to ordering the break-in at the Watergate Hotel. <laughs> yeah. Way back in the beginning of this retrospective, I was giving M. Night massive props for directing Haley Joel Osment in a way that made him not only kill in that part, but also gather an Oscar nomination. I gave him at least 50% of the credit there. I said, you know what? If it wasn't for M. Night, this kid wouldn't have been able to pull this performance off. So this is supposed to play right into M. Night's hands, right? Right into his strength. He can direct kids. But the way he directs this Noah Ringer, a cat I've never even heard of before or since, I am fully convinced that The Sixth Sense was all Haley Joel. This performance performance really really sucks it's bad it's bad I, don't, I wouldn't say it's like the worst that i've ever seen like i think jake lloyd and phantom menace is worse it, i mean that we're gonna be making this comparison in a while yeah i wonder if like because the acting is across the board pretty terrible in this film and i wonder if this is a movie where Shyamalan was kind of 
I mean, he's never before this film. He's never done a movie that was that had this many locations. That was this special effects heavy. Uh-huh. That was this fantastical. They used this much CGI. I wonder if he was a little overwhelmed in the sense of like dealing with all the technical elements and keeping all of the parts moving, and if that lessened his ability to direct the actors because he's been kind of inconsistent throughout this series, but he's gotten some great performances. And usually there's at least one performance, maybe not in the last day, but usually <laughs> there's at least one performance of the film that I go, oh, wow, that's, that's, that's good work there. But here, nobody does good work. So it's like, I, I have to think that that had, had to play a part, that he was overwhelmed by the technical aspects. Let, let me retort to that. This is my appeal to the jury that Exhibit A has circumstantial evidence. Because this is two colossal misdirects in a row with, with actors. Yeah. To to piggyback on uh, Mike's point a little bit, I do think he was overwhelmed, Mike. I really do. And I, and I also feel the happening was not well received. It made money. For some reason, that sucker made over 300 mil. So he made money with it. But nobody came out of that saying, you know, I want to see what else this guy has to do. They gave him double the budget for this. They gave him 150 mil to do what he wants with this. And I think you're absolutely right. I just think he was overwhelmed. I think he took this project. He knew he had to do a franchise in order to keep his name out there. But he dropped the ball on this because it's just not well directed. It's not well acted. I think that has a lot to do with it. And not to mention, we mentioned in those previous shows. And this is why I love doing these retrospectives because you see this gradually build and build. And it it just all comes to a halt here. He is not good with special effects. And this is a special effects laden film. He's overwhelmed. He's not very confident. We said that he directed with a lot of confidence in those previous films. No matter what they were. The Village. the lady, Hell, even Lady in the Water. There was a confidence behind that movie. There's no confidence with this. He just seems like he's kind of getting through it. Yeah. This is the first film in the series that doesn't seem like he directed it. Yeah. Great point. If his name wasn't on it, I would would never have guessed this was an M. Night Shyamalan film. There's nothing to happen to think that it's an M. Night Shyamalan film. Mm -hmm. I think there is... Actually, the the one thing is that he tends to direct actors to deliver dialogue in a very stilted, almost Vulcan level of emotion. And I see that more so with Katara and Oz. I'm going to go by the pronunciations in this wonderful piece of cinema. Um, I see, I see his directing, I see his directing touches on them. Let's also remember this is the first one where his ego was kept pretty much in check. Like, he was not really allowed to make it his own. Like, this is not from the imagination of M. Night Shyamalan. This is someone else's IP, and they just handed him a camera and said, make it work. He also gave the creators the walking papers pretty much and said, you know what, I'm doing my own thing with this. Leave me the fuck alone. You know, so he he still has that kind of God complex going with him a little bit. And I am going to mention a plot point later on that I really think he could have done something with that he just completely drops, but I'll get to that a little later. So they find Aang in the uh, Ong in the ice with a luck dragon. Wait, no, this is Appa, a, a flying bison whose tail traps Soka for a bit. And that's a little attempt at comedy. And if there's one thing this movie needed more of, it's this kind of offbeat comedy. I don't see anybody having any joy in this movie. There's no joy to be had. And that and one thing I'll say about that cartoon is there's a lot of joy to have in that. I, I, like I said, I was laughing quite a bit when I was watching a couple of those episodes. They were very funny. This, where's the joy in this? Where's Soka's sense of humor? Where's Aang's sense of humor? There's none of that here. No. This is, if there's a movie that needs a Han Solo, it would be this one. Yeah. There's, there's no Han Solo. Yeah. Great. Great point. And the source material has it. You have yeah. um, Sokka, who... It's pretty funny, like, and he's 
you know, he's not he's not a bender. So you're always wondering, like, is he just a tag along because he's the brother? God, another Shyamalan thing. I guess this is another hallmark of his. He's not very good with being funny, unironically. No. So Ong explains to Katara that he was forced under the water by a storm and that he was just upset. Meanwhile, the light that rays into the sky brings about the attention of the Fire Nation. Now, Matt, please explain, please explain what the Fire Nation is in this cartoon. So they're basically a bunch of dicks. That, that's Cliff Curtis's character. But fun fact, he's voiced by Mark Hamill in the animated series. Oh, wow. Oh, so there is a Star Wars connection. There um, we go. You know, he's kind, of the, he's kind of the big villain of the series because, of course, the fire element is going to be the one that's hot-headed. There was a comet that would fuel their powers. Right. So these guys are fucking weird. Uh, it's weird that, I mean, this is so, I feel weird making this argument, but I'm not the first one to do it, but like, okay, so all the good guys in this movie are white, and the bad guys are a nation of various brown people. It's so weird and, and like, fucked up. And, I, I, like, in my Shyamalan is Indian American, so, like, I know that he's not trying to send some sort of secret message or anything like that, but it's like, whatever happened in this process to allow that to happen on our screen is like, does, it just doesn't work, you know, it's, it's, and it's so obvious, like, it's so apparent, you know, when you watch it, like, it's so, it's not like, oh yeah, I guess when you think about it, they are all Indian or, or, or Middle Eastern, it's like, no, it's like pretty clear, you know, and it's, and you've got Dev Patel, who I think is a really good actor, and I, I really liked him in films like Slumdog Millionaire and Lion. Lion. And various other things, and I think he, uh, this is like, one of his, this has got to be like, right, like, immediately post- Slumdog Millionaire, right? It's pre. He was cast pre-Slumdog Millionaire. For real? Wow. All that had come out around the time that he was cast. So, yeah, this was pre-Slumdog Millionaire that he got this part. Well, I, and I, hear, I was thinking he was like, he was he was kind of the closest thing this movie has to like a star. Because no. he was, you know, it's not like not like he was fucking Clooney or anything like that, but he just started the Best Picture winner. But it's, wow, he was cast before that. That's crazy. Well, in that case, I don't know. It's kind of weird. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of him in general, but in this movie, I don't think he's very good. I don't. I I can't quite pinpoint what it is. I don't think it's an issue of like he has the wrong approach to the character. Like I, I feel like he's kind of almost doing sort of what Adam Driver is doing as Kylo Ren. Star Wars. Oh yes. Uh, yeah. Right. Oh my god. <laughs> it's, it, that's the comparison I made too. Some of the the moodiness and like the childishness, but within a, a, a framework that's meant to be intimidating. But it, for some reason, he doesn't quite. I don't know. There's something that's missing in his performance there where it doesn't quite seem like all of his actions and his uh, movements are totally connected to each other. You can kind of see him reset in between moments back to Dev, the actor, and then into the character again. And I, I got to attribute that to direction on this one. Earlier when I was talking about the performance that I think is just like a complete botch, it's Asif Manvi. I don't know who his character's named, what the character's named. Can you guys fill me in on that one? It's Admiral Zhao is how you say okay. it. Okay. Oh, got it. In the animated series, speaking of Harry Potter, that character is voiced by Jason Isaacs. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, that sounds cool. Uh, that sounds like he would be intimidating. Uh, <laughs> unlike yeah, he's... Monty. I feel, <laughs> yeah. I feel bad saying this because it's like, I don't want to hold the fact that he was on The Daily Show against him. Like, that's not, you know, just because you do comedy doesn't mean you can't do other things. But am, am I wrong that this performance is, is really bad? Yes. Like, that he does not, he's, he's completely off. Whatever he's doing is... His his approach to all of his lines, I don't know if it's just that it's too over the top, because this seems like this would be a fun character to go over the top with, but it's not fun when he's doing it. It's really, and he's not intimidating, he's not, like, yeah. scary in any sense. 
and it's it's like watching it's like if you were watching Star Wars and like uh, uh, Grand Moff Tarkin was played by like Benny Hill or something like that. <laughs> it's basically the equivalent of General Hux, where it's like, how does this guy command any kind of authority? He's a goddamn buffoon. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, and, but but and the character in the cartoon, like he's he's almost bloodthirsty. But there's real, like, animosity between him and Zuko. Like, it's, it's truly a personal vendetta when Zhao's like, all right, I'm going after the Avatar myself. And his his character's much more ruthless, certainly much more intimidating in the animated series. Every time I heard the name Prince Zuko, though, you know what I thought of, Mike? And I know you're going to love this. I thought of Kuzco from The Emperor's New Crew. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't not think about that. Now, Patel has since come out against this movie. He's pretty much saying that he regrets even doing it. And he apologized to fans of the series for how his performance and the movie pretty much came out. That seems to be a theme of this retrospective. Of it's saying. so funny to me. You've said this multiple times in this series about, like, some actor comes out and like half yeah. years later denounced their their work in the film like it's like i'm sorry i shouldn't have voted for the war in iraq or it was like, it's like yeah why yeah. are they being held accountable what's going on what's, <laughs> why do they need to be it's not their fault really or it's like yeah. you know who cares and you know what it was a big budgeted movie he probably got a very hefty paycheck for it at a time yeah. when he wasn't really that big of a star and he wasn't even in a Best Picture winner when he got cast. So I don't hold it against him, but again, he has come out and denounced this movie since. We see that Katara and Sokka's grandma is being held captive and the firebenders, they take Ong to their ship. Katara tells Sokka that they found the boy and it is their responsibility to protect him. They see that Appa the bison oh. floats which was a very weird scene. Of course, their grandma is also significantly whiter than yeah. everyone else in the village. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she was She's the like the fun, who Who's this actor? I, I, I didn't recognize her. I didn't recognize her either. She's like a wasp grandmother from Connecticut. I like, she's so white. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She should be with the fucking the family friends from The Graduate. Like, she should be <laughs> in a living room somewhere giving graduation gifts to someone and, like, talking about plastics in the country club. <laughs> She should not be in an igloo. This person should not be in an igloo. I'm just, no. I'm, I'm laying down the law. On the ship, Zuko and his uncle Iroh, they say that they are there to perform a test that pretty much verifies if Ong is indeed the Avatar. He moves the fire, he caligulates the water, and then moves a rock, which, okay. Given that he passed the test, he's to be taken to the Fire Nation, but the boy escapes by hang gliding out of danger and onto Appa. Ah, uh, moving a rock. Boy, that doesn't... I don't know. I mean, you couldn't think of anything else on this budget to do other than move a fucking rock, but okay. Well, let's... God, the, the earth bending in this movie fucking sucks when we see what that looks like later on. You're not so, wrong. It, yeah. it, it's, not, it's not like this is that much of a letdown considering the bullshit that they, they set up here. But basically, like, if I had to explain what the Avatar means, the unfamiliar, it's passed down that this is the Avatar... They don't make the fact that he's the the Avatar reincarnated. It doesn't feel like that big of a deal. He just feels like any other soldier. Yeah. 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 And, and that's, that's what I kind of thought of, too. I was just like, well, I mean, the movie was going to be named after him. And then James Cameron had to come around and fuck that up. But, uh, you know, it, it was going to be named after this main character. So I'm thinking, wow, like this has to be like a very important. No, he really he's really not. He's just kind of another part of the puzzle, pretty much. 
Uh, which what I got gathered from the show wasn't the point. The point of the show was to show that this kid is pretty much the savior of the universe, and I don't get that from this movie at all. So, and and the movie also doesn't address the fact that so there's two pretty big omissions. The first one that's not talked about is that when he goes into his avatar state, you know, where he talks to yeah. the, the dragon in the animated series, it is said that if he is killed in that state, the cycle ends and there's no more avatars. Oh, wow. That's his weak spot, so to speak. And also the, uh, the the other thing that's not really talked about is that the Avatar, it's not just the fact that they can master all the elements. There's no discussions about diplomacy in this movie at all. To have none of that, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, then what's so special about this kid? Yeah. Wow, that thing about being killed in, um, while he's in that Avatar state, man, that would have been something to add to this that they... Again, it's just a missed opportunity. Soka and Katera, they talk to their grandma who believes that the little boy might be the Avatar. And here's where we have M. Night once again world building with this old lady character giving us the backstory of what we are about to see. So this is M. Night pretty much doing his, I'll make another Star Wars reference, episode four, A New Hope Obi-Wan scene, and not doing it very well. No. This movie, God, this movie is... Expected them to cut back later on. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. You would think so. This movie's truly hard to pay attention to. Did, am I the only one who felt that way? Like, Dude, uh, I had to do the plot summary to this fucking movie, and my head was yeah. spinning. Like, it, I had to pause it and say, okay, I gotta, re, I gotta readjust, I gotta readjust, I gotta readjust. It's on Netflix. It's one of the only, it's the only M. Night Shyamalan movie that's actually on Netflix as we record this. So yeah. I was able to watch it, like, on my big screen TV and kind of take it in the first time. Yes, I watched this twice for this retrospective. Okay. And then when I took notes on it, I jumped on my laptop and I had to like pause it and just go grab a drink every once in a while, go grab something to eat. You're right. It's hard to pay attention to, even though it's a relatively it's simple. Not long. No, it's a, not oh, yeah, long. Yeah. And it's a relatively simple story. But goddamn, you got you got this M. Night Shyamalan who ruminates in every other movie he does. Like you go to Unbreakable. Unbreakable is like an hour and 30 minutes of Bruce Willis ruminating about why he survived this train crash the last 15 minutes is action here you're having this director who ruminates the majority of his other films all of his other films and he's supposed to be your action director and you're right mike it is so hard to pay attention to because with all these characters repeating time after time after time how important this kid is you show that you don't tell us you show us i paused it at 39 minutes and i was horrified to see that it had only been 39 minutes Yeah, this movie will do that to you. Like, anytime you stop it until the credits, you're like, fuck, there's another, even two minutes to the end, it's like, oh, I gotta sit through another 120 seconds. It's like the, <laughs> the labors of her. For those who are not Facebook friends with Mike, it is an experience to watch him post that he's watching a movie, especially for these shows that me and Matt do, and just see the progression or regression of his thoughts as the movie goes on. It really is something, dude. This whiter-than-white old lady character says that the Fire Nation is scared of the Avatar because he has the ability to change hearts and is in the heart where war is won. Ong says that he needs to go back to his village, and Katara and Sokka say they will accompany him, and here's where M. Night is proving that in doing his version of Lord of the Rings, he's failing badly. Every time you turn around, another character is giving us the same information as before, as Katara once again tells us that Aang has fallen into the ocean while fleeing on the Appa. Yes, we know that. Knight, we've been told this. This is not good storytelling. And they're so, like, 
Man, I, I this is not going to be one of my better episodes just because this movie just takes so much like energy out of you because there's just <laughs> yeah. nothing that happens in it. So uh, I was watching this, I was like, oh, this isn't even fun, bad like the happening. This is just bad, bad. Like there's so many events that just don't even have any weight or any effect it to them or whatever. You know what I mean? He's, some, he's captured that he falls out. And it's like it's just like a shaggy dog story in a lot of ways. Like at the end of the movie, it's like nothing really has even happened. I mean. That, the villains have not been defeated, really. The good guys have not triumphed, really. Nothing really has changed. Like, not to get too ahead of ourselves, but it's it's so... This is just... It's one extremely long book that has been condensed into one not very long film. None of it is fun. None of it lasts or matters. And it's just so fucking miserable. You mentioned the word fun. If you're going to make a franchise and you started off with this, what do you hang your hat on with this? You're not going to hang any posters of these characters because they're all mopey. They're all downtrodden characters. They're not really exciting. I mean, maybe this Appa Luck Dragon slash Bison character. I mean, that he is cute, but what are you going to do with that character? Like, how do you build a franchise around this? You can't. I mean, maybe if there's just more plot in these other seasons of the show, but it doesn't matter because you can't, there's no one would be attracted to the story. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So it's like this, they were, they were doomed to fail with this script. They were doomed to fail with this directorial approach. Like this is just, I, I kind of, I, I mean, I sort of feel bad for the actors who were involved because they had to like, I mean, how long do you think it took them to film this? Probably a couple months. Yeah. If not better part of a year, maybe. I don't know how long the shot shoot was, but you, you just think about it. They had to get up every day. Craft services people had to make sandwiches every day for this film. For what? Who did? The, who liked this movie? Did mm-hmm. anybody like this movie? Did this appeal to anybody? Did it make anybody's life better? I don't mean in the way of, like, did this cure world hunger or anything like that, but just even, like, did it, was there somebody who saw this film at their local movie theater at fucking 4 p.m. on a Sunday and then walked outside and was like, that was kind of good. I not to get into, like, final judgments or whatever, but, like, that, that, that's not what happened here. This is bad. So Ong takes them to his monastery where we see a lemur bat land on him, and we see that everyone that was here is no longer alive. They come to the conclusion that he had been gone for 100 years. This is kind of foreboding. Wow. It's, He's gone uh, for it's a little Austin Powers, you know. <laughs> all this time has passed. Not another Mike Myers reference tonight, but, you know. <laughs> Ong screams at a pendant that he finds. His eyes light up, and he finds a dragon spirit who asks him where he's been. Matt, I don't remember this dragon spirit really in the cartoon. What exact role does he play in the cartoon? Good question. Um, (laughs) Star Wars analogy. He's the ghost of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Okay. All right. That makes sense, then. He points him in the right direction. Uh, Yeah. And speaking of Lord of the Rings, this is fucking Denethor from Lord of the Rings. Oh, really? Meanwhile, on the ship, we learn that the Fire Lord has banished his son, Zuko, until he brings him the Avatar, to which Zuko says he will bow before him when his father takes him back and then does a random bit of anger-fueled martial arts, which, I mean, come on, this is Kylo Ren to a T, isn't it? The Force Awakens came out five years later. I'm not saying that, you know, they, they copied it, but Jesus Christ, it's that character, like, that character would yell out of nowhere and then have these little temper tantrums, and uh, Mike, you made a beautiful comparison by saying that because that that's exactly what this character is. Yeah, and the conflict is so, like, it's all about this conflict with this father that we basically never see uh, who uh, kind of is like we see these shots of him from behind or we see a close up of his hand as he sort of yeah. uh, taps his 
fingers forebodingly and everything like that. You hear his voice, and it, it's like they're setting him up in the way that the early James Bond movies set up Blofeld, you know, where <laughs> you don't see him, his face. You just kind of get the sense of the presence. So that way, when he is revealed, it's like really impressive. And I, I guess we should save it for later, but what they're setting up does not pay off, and we'll get to that. So we cut to the Southern Earth Kingdom, where they come to arrest Ong for bending the Earth, but Katara's efforts to defend their turf go for naught as she traps Zoka in ice. They are taken to another part of the village, which has been ravaged by the firebenders. We are then treated to an inspired speech, quote-unquote, from Ong, who reveals that he is the Avatar who ran away. Oh boy, when you give this kid monologues, it's pretty bad stuff, man. And you know, and I hate to rip on kids in podcasts. I really do. I know Law likes to jump on down kids' throats on these podcasts. I really don't. I, I don't blame oh. the kid. I blame the the <laughs> casting people, and I blame Shyamalan mostly for this because this kid was way out of his element. They all get afraid and attack. And my God, M Knight, why do you attempt action about the only thing helping this action? I, I'm going to go ahead and say, all right, compliment alert for me. Um, I really enjoy the score of this film. It's once again done by James Newton Howard, which to me, this score was pretty great. And after watching this movie, I was kind of angry at myself for not putting at least a piece of this music in the end credits of this show. I think his score here is pretty good. Mike, do you at least like the score? You know, I didn't notice it, but uh, I didn't notice it being bad either, so I guess it's all right. I guess that'll work. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, Jesus Christ. I put Lady in the Water music in the end credits, but I didn't put the score from this in it. God damn, I'm stupid. We see a water-bending scroll, and this is when we learn that Ang ran away before he could learn to bend the other elements, so he pretty much ran away from his responsibilities. They now need to find teachers to teach him the rest. So just to clear this up, the Avatar, Matt, is pretty much a Jedi, right? He has all the tools that others don't? To an extent, not everyone can be the Avatar. But bending is sort of like the Force, because not everyone can do it. Yeah, Je Jedi is a good comparison, but sort of like he'd be like the head of the council, because you can bend only one primary element. Like, it's not like okay. X-Men, you know, it's not like something you're born with. Per se, it's really complicated, but what's great about the animated series is that they don't feel the need to over-explain anything. We get more voiceover from Katara saying that Ong was having trouble learning to bend water and that Sokka is concerned that they were being followed. Through all of this, we keep cutting to the firebenders. And again, M. Night's attempts to tell this fantastical story is falling flat because all this cutting back and forth. Mike, M. Night likes to ruminate and hear like... I'm not getting any sense of conflict. I'm not getting any sense of what I'm supposed to fear. What about you? Uh, no, I'm pretty much checked out by this point, honestly. Like, I should say that I'm not. Like, I should say, oh, no, I was really taking in everything the film had to offer. But it's, uh, no, I, I'm not feeling anything. I don't feel any connection to any of these characters at all. I don't feel a connection to this kid's struggle, this 112-year-old man's struggle, whatever he is. Um <laughs> This movie could be called Baldy in the Water, I also thought. But anyways, comes out of the water. Um, no, I, this is, the movie's completely lost me by this point. I mean, it loses me pretty early on. And I'm not saying I, have, was, I stopped giving it chances after that point. Like, you know, I'm still watching it. This is, uh, uh, I mean, this is truly one of the, I mean, this is, this is one of the dullest things that certainly we, I've been asked to do on the show. I mean, this is probably worse than Hannibal Rising, I think. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I I, I'm tr- I I was kind of struggling before this episode. I was like, I gotta find like interesting things to say about this supremely uninteresting movie. <laughs> so I'm like kind of spinning my wheels here a little bit, uh, trying to figure out how many how many ways I can say what to me was, seems so obvious that this film is a complete dull train wreck. Not even a train wreck. It's like you get on a train, it doesn't go anywhere. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you pay your ticket, you get on the train. There's a bad smell. After two hours, they ask you to leave the train. Like that's what it is. <laughs> I don't know, man. You calling it Balthy in the Water may be the most interesting, best thing you've ever said on this show. Oh, that was fucking fantastic. Uh, Oh, God. So I'm not, let me say, I'm not seething with anger at this movie. I'm not frothing in the mouth whatsoever. I'm just more, this movie's just a boring kind of bad. And it's also never explained why I got frozen in ice. Which is a big yeah, that was weird. They they explained that they found him there, but they didn't explain okay. how he got there. It's kind of a reveal in the show because you don't find that out until about halfway through the first season. And to be fair, I mean, this was supposed to be the first of a trilogy, so maybe they were going to explain that in later movies. At least a a reference to it would have been nice. He does say that he ran away because he wanted to have a family, but he's in a monastery. What is going on? You know, it feels very M. Night. I don't know if this is yeah. a cartoon or not, but it feels very much about family, about people yeah. dealing with their you know, issues with that. So it feels M. Night. It maybe is the only thing in the film that to me feels M. Night. I mean, the no one references Philadelphia at any point. So how great know. would it be, though, if there was just one dude in the background with a fucking uh, like Eagles shirt Eagles on? Hat? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We cut to the Northern Earth Kingdom and Zuko, who says that he feels like they're getting close to Ang, and his uncle tells him that they don't have to continue this. But Zuko tries convincing him otherwise, and we get a flashback to him getting burned by his father. Though Zuko doesn't really look too burned to me. He doesn't no. exactly <sighs> He doesn't exactly have a it, burned face here. Well, he doesn't in the show either. He's got like a just like giant red spot around his eye. Hey, exposition kid! Tell the audience what happened to me. (laughs) Meanwhile, Ong's training isn't going so well, and he wants to go to the temples. He makes his way up there and learns that the Fire Nation has destroyed the temple and ruined everything that they built. Everything except a hidden chamber of statues, which are reincarnations of him. So, are we seeing this kid go through a hero's journey and accept the role he's given? I actually thought if M. Night would have concentrated on this... I thought this was a very interesting place to take the story. I thought that maybe if we concentrate on this, this would have been, you know, I'm not going to say good, but it would have been interesting if he would have kept going to this kid and his um, his conflict within his head of how is he going to take this journey. But no, he's just kidnapped rather quickly by this guy who just has resentment towards him because he left him and had his life suck it right after he left. This, I thought, would have been interesting. Matt, do they do anything with this in the cartoon? What specifically? The the whole thing of these statues being reincarnations of him and the conflict within him of maybe actually t- accepting the responsibility that he has taken on. There's an episode where he he realizes that not everyone is happy that he's back. And there's this old guy who's like really resentful that he's like, where were you when all the all the airbenders got slaughtered? Like you purposely ran away. Fuck you. So Aang has to learn that I have to do this for, for the good of the world. But yeah, this. I think he get he he gets captured more 
then he actually succeeds. At <laughs> he does get captured way. an awful lot. He is spoken to by the dragon spirit, who requests that he go to the Northern Water Tribe to stop the suffering and death. He wakes up chained up and has found out that all he used against the soldiers when saving the towns was airbending. So now they're starting to put together that maybe he's not the Avatar because the only thing he used was, was airbending. But the Avatar is rescued, and we get more piss-poor martial arts choreography as he builds a wall, hops across some pillars, and then glides into the hornet's nest. And after some more battling, we find out that his rescuer is Zuko himself, a.k.a. the Blue Spirit. What the fuck was this? I don't know, man. I don't know. Well, uh, I don't know. You know what this, uh, him jumping on those pillars reminded me of? The opening of Wonder Woman 1984, when they're doing the fucking American Gladiator shit at the opening oh, of the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I thought of, um, I actually thought of Bond, Casino Royale, when they're doing uh, the, all the, all the parkour, uh, parkour? How do you say that? Parkour. Parkour, parkour yeah. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but what it reminded me of was that episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia where uh, Rickety Cricket is running from the cops and he, like, gets up on the scaffolding and he, like, jumps off a truck and everything like that. And it's all very funny. It's like a kind of riff on Aladdin. I had just watched that episode, like, two nights before I watched the movie. So, uh, <laughs> but, like, that had better choreography. Like, that was more exciting and, like, more impressive than what was going on here. And that's a bucket. That was It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Like, that, that had better stunts than this. Uh, so next time I do a martial arts movie, I will ask for the people who did um. It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. It should be said that this movie clocks in at under two hours. But here, which seems like a lot of movie already, we still have an hour left, boys, of this movie. Like, oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. I mean, doesn't it seem like, and don't worry, I don't have that many notes left, but <laughs> doesn't it seem like we've already had, doesn't it seem like we've already had like a lot of movie up to this point? Yeah, and now it's yeah, like, it's only been an hour. Yes. That's why I that's, was aghast when I realized how much time was left in the movie. I was like, no, no. Like, yeah. it was like, it was like fucking time was standing still. Like, I was like, that can't be right. You know, it, it's like, it's, 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 it's like that, um, scene in, in, in Monty Python and the Holy Grail where Lancelot <laughs> is running at the castle and he, he's getting closer and closer and then they cut away and they cut back and he's somehow further away and then he <laughs> runs again and they cut away and then he cuts back again and he's somehow further away and he's still running. It was kind of <laughs> like that where I'm like, I feel like I'm getting closer to the end, but somehow I'm back at the beginning. How am I only 39 minutes in or whatever? <laughs> so on Katara and Soka, they arrive at the Water Tribe and we get more voiceover from Katara about her brother connecting with a princess in the tribe right away. And Ong's waterbending training has begun. M. Knight does a swooping Lord of the Rings type shot in the middle of a dialogue scene for no fucking reason whatsoever. Speaking <laughs> of Lord of the Rings, this okay. entire third act is the discount version of Helm's Deep. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great comparison, actually. Helm's Shallow. <laughs> We learn that the Fire Nation says it is their destiny to have found the location of the moon and the ocean spirits, to which they'll attack the Avatar. Ong spars with the head of the temple a bit, and Soka connects a bit with the princess. These scenes, and guys, I'm going to make another Star Wars comparison. They had a real Queen Amidala Anakin feel to them, didn't they? Oh my god, it is, it's worse. It doesn't help that this is three episodes worth of material where they really get to know each other. That's maybe a minute of screen time before shit hits the fan. But but she's a non-character. Soka is 
is to bulge out of a skull at every scene because all he does is look constipated throughout this entire fucking movie. Yeah. So am I remembering correctly when I say that there's a point where the two of them meet and the girl starts narrating and she goes, and that's when my brother and the princess fell in love or something along those lines? Am I crazy? Did I imagine that happening? He, she just says they no, had a connection. Not a yeah, you didn't imagine that. It's literally like, yeah. she didn't say they fell in love, but they developed like an instantaneous connection. Yeah. I thought I was losing my fucking mind when I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> We're seeing Ong and Katara go through some martial arts inspired motions, but I'm watching this and I'm feeling nothing. What is he supposed to be learning here? When I watched the Karate Kid, for example, I see in scenes with Daniel and Miyagi when they're doing martial arts together that Daniel is learning something in those scenes. M. Knight really has a hard time conveying anything other than, wow, look at them doing these motions. I'm not getting anything from these characters. Yeah. <laughs> Mike has run out of things to say. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, yeah, I wish I, I feel like I'm falling down on the job here a little bit, but uh, yeah, no. Sorry, M. Knight, make a better movie. I'll have more things to say. It's almost a... I'm trying to think of the right analogy. It is so just bad guys want to kill the good guys. And as far as caring about these characters, I give no fucks who lives or dies. I'm not invested in anybody. The Fire Nation shows up. As Ong asks to see the Dragon Spirit for help in defeating the Fire Nation, he sits and meditates. As Katara says, she always knew that he was real. But this is when Zuko shows up and the two of them battle it out. As the Fire Nation invades, Zuko takes Aang, who once again visits the Dragon Spirit and is told that as the Avatar, he is not meant to hurt others. He needs to use the ocean to show them the power of water. So water, which is a huge source of inspiration for M. Night, he used it as Kryptonite on Bruce Willis and Unbreakable. He used it as the weakness of the aliens and signs, and it was the home of Narfs and Lady in the Water. He is once again using it in the confines of a fantasy film. You'd think, again, this would be a strength of his, but no, it falls on its face. Maybe that has to do with the fact that there are a lot of mics out there who are like not invested. I will say I was kind of invested in this. I was kind of wanting to see how this would pan out. So I wasn't beat down by this point, but I'm thinking, wow, M9 is using water again. But once again, it just it just doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. Uh, spoiler alert, it, it ends up not working. It doesn't pan out. Um, this is, ah, uh, God. I mean, and water is such a potent uh, image and symbol in fiction in general. Yeah. So there could be a lot to be done here, but uh, nope. Uh, it's pretty bad, pretty generic. And it's, like, not real water either. It's CGI. So it's all yeah. just kind of watching a bunch of nonsense. And, you know, I, I've, I've complained before about how many blockbusters and, and, and stuff these days end up being various overqualified actors standing on the green screen and they move their hands out and then uh-huh. some CGI goop comes out of their hands and she said another actor who's overqualified is shooting some CGI bullshit out of their hands and it just becomes that. And uh, that's like the dominant form of filmmaking these days. This is the shadow of that. Like, this is the most watered-down fucking, like, homeopathic bullshit version of that, where it's like, not only are we not watching overqualified actors doing it, we're, we're not even watching, like, actor-actors doing it. Like, these mm-hmm. are these are complete, you know, bystanders, and they're, they are bad, and they do a little dance before the hand. They, like, they have to vogue. Mm-hmm. They have to, you know what I mean? It, it's... I don't want to completely diss on the concept because, like, any kind of science fiction or fantasy concept sounds stupid if you say it in the right way. But this is executed extremely poorly. Uh, it's not fun to watch. It doesn't 
look like it's fun to do either. Like it looks like the actors look like they don't know what they're doing and all the choreography throughout all the scenes, even scenes that aren't very action packed, that are only like a little bit action packed. It all seems very wrong. It doesn't seem like anybody was in control of the situation. Um, it doesn't feel like the camera knows who that we're, we're supposed to be following. And it's all just in service to nothing. And it, it, it it's something where it, it's difficult. Like this is the side of how bad of a, a film it is, is that I've heard so many great things about, this show and they are like impossible to match to this film. It's it's hard to imagine how this could work. If you haven't seen the show, it's hard to imagine how this could work in any context, even though I know that it does, or at least it does for a lot of people. There's no imagination with these fight scenes. The TV show, when the, the bending sequences happen, it makes you go, wow. Like I compare it to Miyazaki for a reason, um, just with that level of movement and sophistication. And here it's like, all the people in the background, all the extras, all the periphery fighters, nobody's making any kind of contact with anybody. But even on, on the most basic of level, they do nothing to talk about how all the elements, there is no element that is superior to the others because you would think water puts out fire naturally. It's like, well, fucking stupid when you talk about it. The more questions you ask for this, the worse it gets. And, like, it gets worse and worse as it goes on. Yeah. Ong battles it out with Zuko, but it's Katara who saves him by using water to freeze Zuko. Meanwhile, we see the ocean and moon spirits are the shape of a carp. <laughs> They're killing fish as Zhao kills them. My god. Uh... The princess says goodbye to Zoka, whom she has spent just a few hours with, or a few minutes with if you go by the movie. The moon comes out, and Zuko walks away from a fight with Commander Zhao, with Iroh saying, you now stand alone, and that was always his great mistake. Waterbenders, these guys who I've never seen before, have no idea why they are allowed to kill the Darth Vader of this story, but for some reason they show up, and they freeze him, and he breaks into pieces. Because why? Like, why not have our main character, our title character, do this? This is also a big departure from the animated series. In the finale, he's not killed by the tribe. He's killed by the other spirit that was ah. not murdered the balance. Like, he's murdered for his hubris. He's the main villain of the first season, like Zuko. But he's not really a villain. In fact, he gets the best arc of anyone throughout the whole show. Spoiler alert, he's the one who winds up teaching Aang how to bend fire. It's really well done. Like, it's one of the best arcs I can think of. Like, it, it's what people thought it should be. Meanwhile, Ong is now a water-bending fool, making his way through soldiers like they're nothing, as he's now letting his emotions flow like water, like he's been taught. We see a flashback to when he ran away, and Ong is now ready to face his destiny, building a wall of water and driving the Fire Nation away. Is it bad that I kind of like this? And maybe it's just because I think the final piece of music here by Newton Howard is pretty fantastic. I don't know. I found this I found this to be I'm not gonna say satisfying, but it was at least kind of pretty to watch. Mike, were you grabbed at all by the final scene here? I actually thought it was a step up from what had come before. I felt like maybe <laughs> Shyamalan was he was like really focused on getting like he thought if I build this up to a cool ending, then uh, you know, that'll really sell it. He didn't succeed all the way, yeah. but I, I do think that he, it does seem like he put more uh, effort into the ending and more sort of thought into the ending and a little bit of sort of art into the ending than the rest of the film. But the problem is that by this point, um, actually right now I'm Googling what is a cat boy because I saw somebody <laughs> mention that term and I'm curious what that means. So that's, that's where I'm at right now. Matt, was this at least a little bit satisfying for you? No, it's not, because it's done much better in the animated series. And as a movie, 
it falls flat. Say what you want about the Phantom Menace. Uh, you get your money's worth with that lightsaber fight. There's clearly a jumping off point where the Qui-Gon basically passes the buck to Obi-Wan and saying, now it's your responsibility. You could have done that here with Katara taking on the responsibility of having to train Aang because she's given so little to do in this movie that she doesn't really come into her own as a waterbender either. And it should be a big deal that she's the only person in her tribe that's an actual waterbender. So, you know, it'd fulfill her arc. It'd give her purpose going forward. But how does this movie end? It ends with the bad guys running away. To me, that's just not satisfying. Yeah, but they're setting this up. Because he's greeted by Soka and Katara, who lead him to be bowed upon as the Avatar by the temple. As we cut to a setup for a sequel by introducing uh, a sister? Someone, Matt? yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, Matt. So do you want me to explain, explain this? Please. Alright, so we have not talked about Cliff Curtis, who is Fire Lord Ozai, who is Mark Hamill in the animated show. He's a big villain, uh, and that is Zuko's sister. So his daughter, that he is now tasking with hunting down everybody. So Ozai is like, not only bring me the Avatar, bring me back my son because he can't do anything right. It will surely get made. Well, there's one thing I I want to say about him, which is that, just kind of going back to what I was saying earlier, nothing against Cliff Curtis at all. He's a good actor. I've liked him in different things. His, his, you know, brief performance in this film is not bad or anything like that. It seems weird that he's revealed at this last scene um, in the way that he is because you would think with the way that they were setting him up, showing him from behind, not showing his face and everything like that, that would mean either one of two things. Either one, when you saw him, well, one of three things. One, when you saw him, it, it would be some sort of twist where he's a character that you have seen before and you didn't realize it was him or something like that. Two, you eventually see him and he's got some sort of fucked up face or, you know, he's he's got some sort of appearance that is suitably monstrous and you go, whoa, I want to see them fight that guy or whatever. Or three, he's played by some big star or like some name actor, like if he was Ben Kingsley or something like that, that would be it. But Cliff Curtis is not that kind of actor. Nothing against him. He's just, uh, just When he shows up, you're just like, oh, okay. If you know who Cliff yeah. Curtis is, you're like, oh, it's Cliff Curtis, but that's it. And most people don't know who Cliff Curtis is, so it doesn't land. So anyway, that was my my last thought on that. Is it ends on a completely meaningless scene of, of a character, two characters we don't understand or know about having a completely cryptic conversation. Yeah, the only time we see Ozai in this movie is being told about those fucking scrolls. He literally is the Phantom Menace because he does fucking nothing. He's invisible. All right, scale of one to ten, what do we give the Last Airbender? Oh, boy. This uh, Are we going to get any score above a five? Matt, sir, you go ahead and go. I almost can't even quantify it because nothing about it works in that it does everything wrong. Mm-hmm. I can't get upset about it because the animated series will always be there, and it's holistic. Not quite perfect, but I, g- I give Nickelodeon hubris for trying, but much like Tim Burton directing... Planet of the Apes, this was just the wrong director for the wrong project because his sensibilities just don't fit. So this review has been brought to you by the letters F and U, uh, which also correlates to the the amount of numerical numbers that I'm going to score this review. This is a two on ten. The only reason it's not lower because Lady in the Water exists. 
<laughs> there you go. All right. Oh, I like Lady in the Water more than this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I can see myself watching Lady in the Water again, but I'm not sure about this one. Matt or Mike, sir, uh, you said this was a painful experience. How painful was it? What's yeah. Your score, um, this better be the bottom. Like, this better be the nadir of his career. <laughs> it really better be. I'm serious about that. Uh, so, um, a cat boy is a boy who dresses up as a cat. All right, it makes sense. Uh, contemporary cat boys are typically recognized by their cat ear and tail accessories, and they're often seen wearing maid costumes. One star out of ten. <laughs> That's what I have to say. Wow. All right. Well, let me start this review with this. In looking at this movie and trying to grade it, obviously it is derided as one of the worst blockbusters of all time. But in looking at the sheer crap of fantasy movies that were released in the mid-2000s to a little bit of the 2010s, is this really any worse than the Spider-Wick Chronicles? Is this really any worse than Aragon? Is this really any worse than the Golden Compass? And I remember watching those movies, and I remember just flat-out hating all three of them. I don't really hate this movie so much. What I think about this movie is that, as I've said this entire podcast, I just think it was very miscast. And as Matt alluded to, it is the wrong director for the wrong project. It's I'm not going to say it was painful to watch, but what I will say is that seeing these actors re- say these lines done by a director who flat out believes that he is the world's greatest genius to come into directing since Spielberg. I'm not going to say it was amusing, but I got through it. Let me just put it that way. It was not a painful experience for me, though. You guys have been really hard, and I know, Matt, you come to it from a guy who was a big fan of the cartoon series. Mike, you come to it as somebody who loves good filmmaking and didn't see any of it here. I'm not going to say this was too painful an experience, and those three movies I mentioned are far worse. So I'm going to give this this one below The Happening, because The Happening is one of those movies that is just like you can watch it and laugh at something new each and every time. This one, you watch it once and it's done, but I didn't think it was that painful. So it's a four. I think there's oh some... My God. It is. I, I, did, I think the, the score is damn good, and I think there are some pretty captivating visuals here. And again, the performances and everything really drag it down. Dev Patel, even as good of an actor as you've said he is, Mike, I didn't see that here. But you're seeing some actors just kind of give these lines given by a director who doesn't know what he's doing. But some of it is kind of good to watch. But still, like the miscasting of the main character, the miscasting of the two other characters from the cartoon series, the two kids, and everybody else, it's, it's bad but i'm not gonna say it was like the worst watch nicole kibben in the golden compass and tell me it's worse i, 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 I don't see it but anyway yeah so that's the last airbender oh boy they had a planned trilogy it didn't pan out and at this point this was the straw that broke the camel's back m night Shyamalan's name was not looked at in a positive light before or after this and the very next project he did, he did it almost in a synonym. Like, he did it using the name Will Smith, not using the name M. Night Shyamalan. And, Mike, what the fuck is it that every time I, we do a retrospective with you, we have to do a goddamn Will Smith film? I don't know, man. He never did a Hannibal Lecter movie. <laughs> no, he hasn't done that one yet. What are you expecting next week? Have you have you seen After Earth? Do you know what you're expecting next week? I have week? not. I, when I say uh, that I hope it's the bo- that this is the bottom... I sincerely mean that. Let me just put it that way. I really hope that this is the bottom and that After Earth is not worse because it sounds like it could be worse. I don't know. I mean, we'll see. 
I've only seen it once. I don't remember it being as bad as this, but I also saw it at a time when I was very anti-Will Smith, and I'm not so much anymore. I'm not the angry person who hated Will Smith way back when. Matt, sir, what are you expecting next week when we do After Earth? Honest, I'm expecting... I have no idea because I barely remember After Earth. I was more curious than anything because it seemed like Shyamalan going back to true science fiction, another Aliens movie, Will Smith. Yeah, well, we're going to be testing poor Ganeri here next week when we do After Earth. Hopefully he doesn't tap out of this retrospective because it has been. If it wasn't for us three talking about him, I wouldn't watch these movies again, but it's been fun talking about them with you gentlemen. Always fun. So, until next week, Ong, use the podcast. Show them the power of podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. says hi. She says she's sorry for taking the bumblebee pendant. She just likes it a lot. The Binge Movie Aftertaste is produced by Garrett and Matt. Joseph, did you load that gun? You won't get hurt. Elijah was wrong. There's a monster outside my room. Can I have a glass of water? Voice narration done by Adam. You, alone, will follow the road and leave Covington Woods. Garrett. Maybe people are setting off the plants? What are you saying? That guy was crazy. We have to save them. They're already dead.
prisoner. Airbender. Send ships, drop those things. There's, um, there's lots of visual tension. To whom am I speaking with now? Dr. Fletcher, it's Barry. Today is your coming out party. At least you know what to wear. What? No. To like call your shot like that and then not follow through on it is just so funny. What did Brie Larson well, think? Well, it's. You're thinking of Shaley. You're thinking of Shaley Woodley, not. No, no, no. Larson. I was thinking of Brie Larson because it's a it's a joke. Because I saw it on a day. Yeah. Exactly. Oh. oh. <laughs> I'm if sorry. She, if Brie Larson ever finds out about this podcast, that's the end of my chances. <laughs> Go ahead, Matt. I'm sorry. What? No. Oh boy, this uh are we gonna get any score above a five? Matt, sir, you go ahead and go. <laughs> what? No. <laughs> what? I'm just hearing laughter. I know, I'm just hearing laughter. Matt, you go ahead and go, sir. Are you uh scale of one to ten, what do you give this movie? Christian Christian just ate shit in the kitchen right now. Uh oh he just, oh, he just bit it. Oh, that's why you're laughing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Is he okay? All right, just, just check. Yeah, yeah, just check it. Uh, okay. No, it was loud. Like, I just jumped out of my seat. Anyway, all right. What? No. So, until next week, 
Boy, I'm trying to find a quote to end this thing on, and I can't find one. Oh, God. It hit me like, oh, shit, I don't have any quotes for this. Oh, hold on, hold on. Uh, I got one, I got one, I got one. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, contemporary cat boys are typically recognizable by their podcast. <laughs> and Taylor. All right, I got one. Swing away, Meryl. Swing away. You've been listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network at BingeMedia.net. Support the show by donating on Patreon at Patreon.com slash BingeMedia. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget... Shut up! I'm wasted.